Good morning, Wheatfield. It is a delight to be with you all. My name is Daniel Stidham. I'm the husband of Megan. I'm the father of Nora and Micah. In fact, I think I have a little picture of them here for you. And uh, they're my main events. You know, my, my wife, again, is my main event. Uh, Micah's four months old, and he's a, a, a truck driver slash Italian mobster. At least he, he poses most of the time that way. And my daughter, little Nora, who's four years old. And I follow Jesus. And one of the ways I follow him is I pastor at Calvary Oak Lawn. Uh, and, and I'm so grateful to be with this family today. I'm so grateful to be with you all. Uh, you might be wondering, um, I look Mexican and I, I know it, some of you are like, he is, he must be. No hablas espanol. No, I'm Filipino. But for four to seventh grade, um, you know, I don't know if my kids look Filipino. Maybe they will one day. But um, I, people thought I was uh, Mexican or Hispanic. And so I actually got kind of like initiated into this little wannabe uh, Latino gang from fourth to seventh grade. And there was a curriculum to this kind of gang, which meant in sixth grade, you took art for your electives in middle school so that you could tag and graffiti things. I was terrible at art. Uh, and then in seventh grade, you took home economics. Any home economic fans in the room? Home economics? One of you, okay? Uh, so home economics is where you learn to sew and cook. It is a gangster's paradise, okay? So we would, it's where the girls were and it's where the food was. And that's where, that was what we did. Uh, and seventh grade, Miss Thompson, my home ec teacher, with the soft eyes and the wire-rimmed glasses, was the nicest teacher I'd had, one of the nicest teachers I'd ever had. And I remember at the end, of, any teachers in the room? At the end of the year, yeah, okay. So is this normal? At the end of the year, the students stay after to clean up the chairs. Is that normal? Do a lot of students do that? No. So I, for some reason, felt led to stay on the last day of school and stack the chairs and help her clean up her room. She came up to me with those soft eyes and those wire rim glasses and looked me in the eye and said, Daniel, I knew there was something different about you. In those words... They created a world in me. Those words spoke to the deepest part of my soul where, because I, I wasn't even Mexican. I was in this Mexican game. I didn't belong there. I had felt different my whole life and I still feel so different. But for the first time in my entire life, someone spoke to me and different felt like a good thing. And that created a world for me. My, I could look back at my eighth grade year after she said that my life started to change. A world started to happen differently. Abraham Heschel says words create worlds. Some of you have heard painful words. Some of you have heard words of destruction and pain and sadness some of you have heard teachers, parents, or friends say critics, critiques, and judgments, and that chip on your shoulder are the words of someone who may have even intended good. You know, those words may have even been true, but they felt like a curse. And some of us are going to spend our whole lives, our whole careers, trying to prove those words wrong. Some of us are going to spend our whole lives trying to prove those words wrong. You know, the world in our mind is as real as this one. The words that we speak create a world. And the reason I love preaching is because I'm going to tell you about Jesus and the gospel, and it's going to collide with lies in your mind. 
ways that you've understood God that are not in line with scripture. I love to preach because it's a collision of worlds because words create those worlds. You know, a good therapist or a good listener, they try to understand and get a view into your world. How do they do that? By listening to your what? Your words. They listen and they can see into your soul. Our whole worldview, everything that you look at is through the scaffolding of sentences, phrases, and paragraphs. Your whole worldview is built on the scaffolding of words and phrases that you repeat over and over and over. The power of words is emphasized also in scripture. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Proverbs chapter 18. That's where I'm gonna land. I'm gonna be throughout the Proverbs. But the book of Proverbs talks about the, the power of words and the worlds they create. So it's, check these words out. Proverbs 10, 31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. That word brings forth is actually the Hebrew word for gushes, overflows with wisdom, life. But the perverse tongue, the twisted tongue will twist so far that it will be cut off. That's what the power of words can do. There is one whose rash words, those are the quick biting words, are like the sword thrust. They kill, they hurt, they harm. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. One is stabbing, the other is stitching. Truthful lips endure forever. Truth endures for eternity. But lying, the lying tongue is but for a moment. It fades and vanishes. Like in James 1, the pursuits of a rich man fade like a flower. A gentle tongue, this is something I need a prayer for. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. And I think gentleness is one of those things that when you speak truth gently, it goes deeper and deeper into the soil of someone's heart. A gentle tongue can do that. But a perverse tongue, a twisted tongue, breaks the spirit. Breaks the spirit. Lastly, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's what's at stake today. This is the structure of my message. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And whoever and those who love it, whether it's death or life, will eat of its fruit. Words create worlds. And words, as we can see, bring death. They can bring death. We've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, right? Those are lies. That's untrue. I don't know what someone, whoever wrote that needs to like live life because I think I know what they're trying to say. Words may not be able to break my bones, but they can crush souls. We all know, it, well, some of you know what it's like to be verbally abused and how those words will take residence in your thought and mind and will last far longer than the bruises on your body. We know the feeling. In that way, we understand that words train the mind. Words train and shape and sculpt your mind. What kind of words do you dwell on? What kind of words do you rehearse? What kind of words replay? Did you know 80% of self-talk is negative? 80% of our conversations we're having with ourselves are critical, are damaging, 
our complaint, 80%. And I wonder if today's mental health crisis, which is very real, is rooted in the fact that like on any other generation, we are flooded over and over with words. Words that could bring life, but words that often bring death. Words of comparison, words of half-truths. And that's the most dangerous thing. The, the, the most dangerous lies are the ones that are kind of true, but just not totally true. And every ad that you listen to, every bit of information that Google is mining on us to sell us something, every ad is trying to whisper this to you. You don't have enough. And those words will kill you because you will consume and consume and you will bleed out thinking that thing is gonna give you what you want. That relationship's gonna give you what you want. That car, that product, that style, whatever it is, whatever lie that that ad is trying to tell you, those words can kill you. Those words can bring death. I knew a cross country runner, a friend of mine, a freshman standout. She was a great runner with very little training, was, was finishing even better than the senior star cross country runner at the time. And she was at a meet, one of the top runners in the district. Uh, this man was going to state for sure, came up to her and looked at her and said, and I th- he may have meant well, but he told her, if you lose some weight, you can cut more time. And you can go further, something to that effect. She was rail thin, by the way, but she took those words and she repeated them and let that train her mind. And she lost some weight and she lost a little more weight and she lost a little more weight to where she couldn't run anymore. That's what words can do. They can kill you. They can destroy you played over and over, train your mind to bring death. And we also use words to justify death. The kinds of words we use are important. You know, my garage is filled with these, or at least skeletons of them, uh, mice and rats. I, you know, you're probably judging me. I live in Oakland and, you know, near Chicago. So that's why, that's why they're there. And um, I need a cat is really what I need. And, but we call, you know, Rats and mice and roaches, what do we call them? Pests, and who do we call to take care of them? The exterminator, right? Pest control, which means pest murders, right? Like kill, they're killers is be honest about this, right? Now I'm not arguing for the flourishing of rats. I, we need those to end. We need them to be somewhere else in fields, okay? I'm not, but we use words to make ourselves feel better because if we called them mammals, we might actually kind of feel bad. So we use different words, we call them pests. You know, in the transatlantic slave trade in the 16th century, they dictated how close you were to God based on the color of your skin. And the darker you were, the closer to animals you were. And they, create, and they used words to justify slavery. We use words strategically to get what we want. And maybe the most tragic one today that we do is we call unborn children clumps of cells in order to justify murdering them. That's the truth. And some of you are like, I'm pro-life, preach it. 
The truth hurts, right? The truth hurts. Let them know it's wrong. But if I, if I stop there and that's all I say, you'll realize, yes, the truth hurts. And some of us are justifying how we talk to people and saying, this is the truth. They need to hear it. And you're hurting everybody around you because the truth does hurt, but the whole truth heals. So anyone in this room that's gotten an abortion, who's thought about getting an abortion, here's the whole truth. Every one of us in this room who's called someone a fool has committed murder. We've all sinned. And what you may have one time tried to put to an end, God by his word can begin again. God in his word can bring new life in you. You are not condemned. You can be forgiven by the God who gives words that bring life. The words of God can bring life. So in this way, God's very word created the universe. And any of you who look up astronomy or astrology know that the universe actually is continually expanding. Do you want to know why that is? Because God's not done talking. He still speaks in a way that is expanding his glory. God's word is powerful. It creates worlds and universes. But it's not just powerful. God's word is intimate. It's personal. It's so intimate. It's so personal that God's word is literally a person. God's word, his words, mine just become wavelengths and sound in time and space. His word is a person. The word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. That's how personal and intimate the very words of God are. And it's personal, intimate relationships that bring life. That's why I believe in Jesus and no one else. So train your mind with the words of life. The word become flesh. Train your mind. You want to know what would have trained the minds of every young Jewish person? It's the first verse they would have listened to, the first verse they would have memorized. I hope it's what we teach the kids in the back. It's in Deuteronomy 6, chapter, in ver chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, Hear, O Israel. The word for that in the Hebrew is Shema. That's what this is called, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Personal, possessive pronoun. He's ours. The Lord is one. You're like, all right, Daniel, that doesn't sound very revolutionary. But for, for, for both then in a polytheistic world of other gods and today, this is a statement of power. Think about it. He is the one. There is no one else like him. Everyone else is but a shadow or a counterfeit. He is the one. Every question to every dilemma you've ever had, the Lord is the answer. He's the one. Everything you've ever been through, the darkest nights, who's been there for you, the Lord is the one. This is huge because Satan is trying to divide us. 
to worship other gods, to follow comfort and convenience and consumerism and whatever and everywhere else but God. That's what Satan's trying to do. And this, is, this verse is saying, no, the Lord is the one. He's the one. There's no one else. Every other God is deaf, dumb, and mute. He is the one God who speaks. Hear his words. He's the one. The Lord God is one. The best example I have of this in my own life is when I got married to my wife. So anyone who's single, pardon my, uh, this limiting illustration, but you can imagine this with a parent or with a close friend or your best friend. But when I covenanted with my wife, I told her at our marriage, a miracle happened where I said, you are the one for me. And we became one. And believe it or not, that wasn't always pretty. Our eight years of marriage, I know it's hard to believe, but we get in arguments. I'm, I know, it's shocking. I'm so kind and gentle. And all, but no, truly, I, I can be harsh. I can be angry. I can be selfish. And in every one of our arguments, ultimately at the bottom of every single argument, we need to hear these three words. At every argument, I need to hear these words to me from her and she needs to hear these from me to her. And there's only one person that can say these three words that would ever do anything for her. You guys could all try to say it, won't mean anything to her, but there's only one who can tell her these words. And this is every single argument we get into. This is what my wife needs to know. This is what I need to know. This is what you need to know. Hebron, this is what you need to know. Jail campus, this is what you need to know. I'll be there in your darkest night, in your ugliest sin, I'll be there. When our kids are sick and dying or you're sick and dying, I'll be there. I'll be there. That's what I need to know. And that's what she needs to know. And that's what you need to know. There's only one who can tell you those words and it actually change your world. And that Lord is the one who will be there. He will be there for you in the darkest night. He will be there for you in your darkest sin. He will be there for you in the greatest joy of your life. He will be there. He promises, he covenants, he commits in his blood to be there with you and for you. Train your mind with this truth that God will be there. Train your mind. And when you begin to train your mind with words of life and you start to experience the presence of God break in to your life, your life will change. Your world will become new. You know, when you see the Lord is always there, always present in every keystroke at work, in every dilemma you've ever had, in every moment of every time, in the boredom, in the excitement, in the mundane or in the marvelous, he's always available. He's always listening. He's always there, not to police you, but to protect you, amen? He's always saying, I'll be there. And when you live and let that train your mind, your life will change. Your world will will change his presence breaking through. Now, how do we do that? How do we train our mind with words of life? That's in the next verse of the Shema. The Lord God is one. 
How do we love the Lord? Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and your might. Love the Lord your God. In light of the fact that he is always present, we respond with love, with all of our being. Not just some of it, not just Sunday bit of it, all of it. He's the only one who's worthy. So how do you do that? How do you get these words in your heart? How do you get these words to change your worldview? These words I command to you today shall be on your heart. How? Let's look. Teach them to your children. Let them know there's one God. Let them know over and over, you're gonna be tempted to follow other gods. And if you don't have children, tell your cat. Tell your cat, there's one God, kitty cat. There's no other God. You think that catnip's God? It's not. He made it in moderation. He's the one. Tell your children, tell everybody, tell your spiritual children, there is no other God. He is the one. No one else can compete with him. Then teach your disciples, teach and talk about God. Talk about how he's the one when you sit down in your house, when you're just hanging out, talk about him. How he's the one who broke through today. He's the one that was present in your highs and in your low, God was there. Talk about him. When you sit down, when, when you walk, by the way, when you're just going on your afternoon walk, talk about him. Talk about how he's there, how he's there in the flowers, how he's there in the grass, how he's there in the atmosphere, giving you breath, invisible air, giving you life, the invisible power of God, keeping you alive, he's there. When you lie down, when you're tired, he's there. Psalm four says, in peace, he makes you lie down in safety. He's there. When you rise from death to life, He's there giving you new life every morning, new mercy every morning. He's there when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. I don't know if you guys see the intentionality here. In every facet of life, if you want the words of God to train you, if you want the words of God on your heart, where do you put them? Everywhere else. Some of you need to rearrange your furniture and paint some things on your wall. Some of you need to let go of your Baptist tradition and, and tattoo the words of God on your hand. I don't know, I'm just joking. I don't know if that's truly true. I don't know if you really should do that. But here it says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You're like, what? what's going on? Am I literally wrapping a scroll on my hand? I think the visual here is that when you work with your hands, be it a typing, be it cleaning, whatever you do, all of your work should remind you, who's your boss? Who do you work for? Not your CEO. And if you're the owner, you don't work for yourself. You work for the one. You work for the one. You work unto him as a janitor or as a CEO. It doesn't matter to the glory of God on your hands, in your work. Remember the one. He's with you, for you, wanting you to work unto him and no one else. And then it says another, how should we get these words on our heart? Bind them on the frontlet of our eyes, between our eyes. This is weird. Any glasses wearing people here? Here we got, we got one here. What's your name? Steve? Steve has glasses and they rest where? On his nose, between his eyes. Okay, we got, we got some clues here. Maybe Deuteronomy 6 is trying to tell us 
the Lord God is one, look at everything in the world through the oneness of God, through the power of God, through the love of God. Some of you need to put the Lord as one on your, on your steering wheel so that the next time you wanna let somebody know that, that you think you're the one, he's the one. Give them a little beep to let them know they're, they're on their phone, you know, a little gentle one. That will get down to the root of their soul. We need to look at everything. Put it everywhere. Put it on a light switch. And when you put the word of God on your, the front lid of your eyes, you'll look in the mirror and you won't just see clearly. You'll see that the Lord is the one and he's chosen you to be with him. So it not only changes everything you see, it changes how you see yourself. So that every time you look in the mirror, you don't forget whose you are. You're his. By the blood of Jesus, he ransomed you and made you his. And then he goes further, not just on your frontlets, put it on your doorposts. Why? Because Israel was the corner of the known world at that time. Europe, Asia, Africa, all joined at Israel. And when people would walk by, the Lord is one. It was evangelism. They had all these other gods at their other places. And Israel says, no, on the, on the sidewalk of the universe, of the known world, the Lord is one. And I'm gonna let the whole world know. And every time we walk in our house, we remember there's only one God and he's the one who is worthy. Write it so everyone can see. Some of us need to put sticky notes all over our house. The Lord is the one who gives light. The Lord is the one who provides your daily meal. You need to write it everywhere. If you want it in your heart, put it everywhere else. Let it train your mind and don't let them get stale. Write them again and write them again. And memorize how the Lord is one because this is what happens. If you let that word abide in you, Jesus says this, in your words, his words abide in us. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Jesus makes an audacious claim. It's almost dangerous. Like we would never, I would never write this today. I'd be like, oh, that's up for bad. And someone could interpret this and just be like, God's a genie in a bottle. Not quite. What, God, what I think Jesus is trying to say is when you know the Lord is the one and that fills you and his love fills you, you can go to the father as a father. Nora and Micah, when they call out to me, when they cry out to me, they in confidence know I'm gonna be there, that I'm gonna give them what they need. Their deepest wish, their deepest need, not the candy they think they want, and the red dye 40 that I hide on the side, that's not what they need, what they really need is the love of a parent who if they go to, they know will always be there because Daniel Tiger tells us grownups come back. Jesus comes back and he's coming back. When you are filled with the word of God, you will approach God like a child, not childish, but childlike. And if there's anything our children can teach us, it's what faith looks like to ask whatever we wish and he will give it to us as a good father. And so I ask you, what kind of words fill your heart? What kind of words do you listen to? Because Jesus says in Matthew 12, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What fills your heart? 
Is it 24-7 news cycles? Is it podcasts and others that just agree with you? Is it sports talk, radio? Is it whatever, some gospel according to Disney or whatever things we listen to that I listen to as well? What do we fill our heart and mind with? Because I've never met someone who is absorbed in politics who's happy. Have you guys? Like, Anytime someone talks about politics, they've got these crazy clickbait titles. They're angry and sarcastic and self-righteous. And I'm just like, I'm never hopeful. Is that what fills you? Do you just talk about conspiracy theories and despair and how bad and sad the world is? Is that what fills your heart? Because if that's what you talk about, you're speaking death. Train your mind with words of life and stay positive in Christ because you'll speak life or death over people. Because what filled Jesus's heart? What, what filled Jesus's heart? Love, right? But not just any love. The love of the world will put him on a cross. The love of God, the father eternally cared for him and loved him. Just imagine that Jesus uncreated, fully God, fully human, had eternal communion and relationship, hearing the voice of God, the father. I mean, father, son is like a, a, a we struggle with that analogy because it's not like God had a mother and had a baby. No, they're both God connected eternally. But Jesus, when he became flesh and dwelt among us, he was put on a cross because of our sin and our pain and the devil's intention and evil. And on that cross, he cried out to the father with whom he had had eternal connection and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in all of eternity, the universe broke. And Jesus heard nothing. The silence killed Christ. The father turned his face away. And the silence that our sin brings crushed him. My dad, when I was driving, uh, he was driving me to the airport and I was going to an internship at Barclays Capital and Investment Bank and I was going to New York to train, work in Houston. And he looked over at me and said, Daniel, I had no idea you'd have come this far. And what I think he meant by that, I mean, I remember that those words, like they were yesterday. I can see his face. I can see where we were on the street. And I think that meant he was proud of me. And I would go on to mess up that, inter that internship. Didn't get an offer back. I'd get a job at a bank, did fine. And I would get into church ministry. For years, I'd preach the gospel Week in, week out, I'd stand up on a stage before two or 20 or 200, preaching my heart out, telling people about Jesus. And never once did my dad ever text me or call me to let me know he was listening. Never once did my dad ever tell me he was proud of me. Silence. And that silence is deadly. My dad is dead now. And you want to know what my dad can never tell me ever again on this side of heaven. He can never tell me that he'll be there. He can never tell me 
that he'll be there. And he wasn't there. But I have a new family, a mother-in-law who texts me every Sunday. I have a God and father who tells me every moment of my life, I am here. Hebron, he is here. Jail campus, he is here. Wheatfield, the I am is perpetually forever here. Right now, with you, he's the only one. Your friends, your family will all eventually fail you, but only God, the only one, no one else will do. He'll be there, he's been there, and he's here now and he'll never leave. The I am, the true father, his words can train your mind. And when you see the love of Jesus on a cross, giving his soul strength and might for you, that you might be freed from the lies of the words of the devil, setting you free from sin and bondage, I implore you, love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. Let the words of Jesus train your mind. And when you let his words train your mind, you have the power to create new worlds with him, through him. You have the power to speak life or death over people. You have that right now. Your words can create a new world on earth as it is in heaven. Let's use our words for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for the ways that we have cheapened our words, for the ways that we've overconsumed words that are not the gospel. Forgive us, oh God. I pray, oh Lord, who, those in this room who need the word of healing, who are carrying the pains of death in their body, that you would speak to them. God, I pray for the people in this room who have felt different all their life, that you would remind them that you've been there, you are here and you'll never leave. God, I pray for anyone in this room who has felt the silence, the deafening silence of never hearing your voice. I pray they hear it today. I pray they hear that you're the one and there's no one else and that they would come to you ready to stop being divided, ready to stop splitting their love to other gods and other people and other things to see that you're the one. I, God, I pray that you would have us crown you Lord of all. That's the true world. And may we sing like that's true. May we respond in song and generosity, giving you all of our strength, all of our might. Help us to sing like it's our last, like you're coming back today or tomorrow. God, help us hear and proclaim to a starving world that you're the one so that the whole world might sing with us to crown you Lord of all. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, amen.